Well, I would say that that song sums up what I want to try to do this morning. I want to point you to Christ. And in a long string of providential acts this week, I'm going to do that in a text that I was not planning on going into. I had planned on presenting to you the introduction to First Timothy this morning, but God providentially blessed me with about 60 hours of work this week and not enough time to even sleep hardly. And uh, at the same time, he, uh, he directed me this morning and last night, late last night, to just uh, focus on the things that are of most importance this morning, which is the gospel. And I think this will edify you as well as First Timothy would edify you. And I think that it would uh, be actually very beneficial for us to look at what we're going to look at today because today is Communion Sunday. And so if you would, please uh, bow your heads with me and pray with me and for me this morning as um, we go to God's Word to grow in the truth and give Him glory for the work that He has completed in our redemption. Father God, we come to you this morning based on and through the merits of Jesus Christ, your Son. And Holy Spirit, we need you to show us Christ, the glory of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the power of Christ, the victory of Christ. Lord, so often we remember the death of Christ and we talk about the resurrection of Christ we forget about the return of Christ. And Lord, we long for that day. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And between now and then, make us quick in our hearts to go to the lost and to declare the gospel so that you would be glorified among all men. I pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today... I want to, uh, to help prepare you to come to the Lord's table joyfully this morning. I've got a, a little bit of feedback. Can you guys hear that? I can hear that. All right. I want to help you prepare your hearts to worship the Lord this morning by remembering Christ's promises to his people that are here in our communion text as you prepare to take communion this morning. At the Lord's table, we have a very unique opportunity at the Lord's table, we actually get to see and taste the past and present promises of the gospel. Those promises tell us that we are both saved and sanctified, set apart unto God by the work of Jesus Christ alone. But don't forget there's more to the Lord's table than the past and the present. There's also a future promise that's given to us in this text that we're going to read this morning. A future promise that is yet to be fulfilled by Christ. But it will be, just as surely as the past promises were fulfilled by Christ. And the present promises are fulfilled by Christ. And that promise, as we look at this morning, I pray would, would help produce in your hearts a joyful anticipation at the thought of His second coming. Now, I've preached this sermon multiple times here at Sovereign Grace. Some of you have heard me preach this sermon because I think this is a very worthy of repeating sermon. 
But I'm going to ask those of you who have heard me preach this sermon not to check out at this point, okay? Not that I'm going to come across any clearer to you this time, but the scriptures, the texts themselves are worthy of your full attention, and I believe that they will bless your heart and your mind as you prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. So just keep that in mind as we go to this glorious text and see it again, hopefully with new eyes this morning, in joyful anticipation of Christ's second coming. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, 23. 11, 23. Look at this amazing instruction that we are given here. Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord... But I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death Until he comes. We'll have a Selah moment as the train passes by. He was gracious. All right. Let's look at the last verse I read again. Verse 26. After he's telling us what to do and why to do it. To remember the work of Christ. Take these elements into your body. He says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, pause, until he comes. Implication, he's alive, right? And he's coming. Just as surely as he came in the past and accomplished the work of redemption, he's coming in the future to bless his people at the second coming. This passage reveals to us a a present and a future hope when you see it this way. Because if you look at verse 26, you see there that there are promises that we are given here that are so glorious and so amazing. It takes a whole book devoted to it to explain it at the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Understand this. Verse 26 promises to us as believers that we who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see him one day. Face to face. Does that not thrill your heart this morning? The communion table is supposed to remind you of that when you come here. It's supposed to stir up new affections for Jesus as you come to this place. So often we come here and we should do great self-examination before we come. I encourage you to do that. But so often you come here with your downcast faces as you look at the table as if it's a mournful thing. It's a joyful thing. It's where our salvation is being illustrated to us in a physical way, a tangible way. And it's promising us something. Jesus isn't in the bread. He isn't in the cup. He is in heaven and he's coming again. He's coming and we're going to see him because his work was completed in the past. Christ promises us that we will one day feast with him again. We'll feast with him again at a new table and in his literal and physical presence. Does that excite you? I hope it does. Look with me at how exciting it is. 
Because we see the promise realized in Revelation 19. Go there with me. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 6. Now, every time I come to the book of Revelation, I want to break out in my own doxology, okay? I'll just be honest with you. You're going to find, if I can weave a Revelation 4 or 5 or 19 passage into my sermons, I will. Because these are exciting to me. Because this life is passing away, folks. It's transient, Paul tells us in Corinthians. The things that are unseen are eternal, substantial. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the eternal truths of what's going on in heaven here, in the future that's promised to us who believe. Verse 6 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why, John? Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let me tell you something, folks. Those righteous deeds come through the saints because of the righteousness that is cloaking the saints. That's what's covering us. It's the righteousness of Christ. And that's what produces sanctification in our life, holiness in our life. And we're told here, this is going to be our marriage supper that we're going to celebrate one day. We're going to be with the one who clothes us with his righteousness Covers our filth. As holy as you may feel that you are at this moment. Saints, apart from Christ, you are destitute. And in Christ, your sins are covered. They haven't been eradicated yet. On that day, they will be in his presence. All will be made holy. Because of the one that we are with. He has accomplished his work, and we're celebrating the victory on that day. But today, we are to remember that when we come to the Lord's table. We are to remember that today as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and we should anticipate the great day that's coming when we do so. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, we we experience Christ's presence in a spiritual way, and his promises come to us in a very spiritual, truthful way in Scripture. But understand this, according to what Paul says and according to what John's saying here, when Jesus comes again, we're not just going to enjoy the spiritual presence and promises of the king. We're going to see him when he comes. Can you even imagine what he looks like in his glorified state? We're going to see him physically with new bodies ourselves. Can you think about that for just a minute? Everything we see in life is distorted because of sin. But one day the sinless one's coming again. He's going to remove the blinders from our physical eyes. We're going to see him physically with new eyes one day. Recreated eyes, regenerated eyes. 
eyes that can feast on the glory of Jesus forever and not turn away. Could you imagine this? Moses couldn't stand the presence of the glory of God as it passed by him. God had to cover him in the cleft of the rock. He had to shield him from the glory. But we're going to be given new eyes through the resurrection that Christ has accomplished for us. The power of the resurrection that promises us resurrection. And in those new bodies, we're going to be able to feast upon the Lord Jesus. See him in his fullness. That's what the Lord's Supper should make us long for with awe and wonder when we come and hold the cup and the bread in our hands. There's much more going on in that illustration than just simply a memorial service. It's a promise of future grace that's being offered to us every time we partake until He comes. I think that's why Christ commands us to continue doing this. I think he commands us there in 1126 to continue proclaiming the gospel through the illustration of communion because we need the reminder, folks. I get tired of this life. I put 60 hours of work in this week. I'm just flat tired, all right? But I'm really tired of hearing the horrible things that I heard this morning about a 13-year-old boy drowning because of the fall, because of this world And the death that reigns over all men now because of sin. I'm tired of it. I want it to end. And there's a promise that it will in Christ's return. So we're to continue on celebrating what this supper represents and what it promises us. We're to continue celebrating Jesus' incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh and becoming a man to stand in our place. We're to continue celebrating his sacrificial substitution upon a cross, receiving the penalty that we all deserved. And we're to continue celebrating his glorious resurrection that declares that we are now justified in him. But we're to do all those things in anticipation because it's not through. There's more, much more, Paul would say in Romans 5. We are to do all these things, remember all these things at the Lord's Supper, and do so anticipating and longing for Jesus' victorious second coming. We are to do that because on that day, the day that Jesus returns to claim his own, we will no longer be looking for a memorial service once a month. We We won't need it to remind us of his great work. But until that day comes, we are commanded to continue coming to the table, focusing our eyes on Jesus through the eyes of faith as we partake of the elements and feed on God's word corporately. But but remember this, folks. One day, church, we are promised here in this text that we are going to see Jesus face to face. And then on that day, our faith will become sight. What a glorious day. What a glorious day that will be when I see Jesus face to face. The one who saved me by his grace. His favor. Undeserved, unmerited. Granted to sinners. To sing his praise. On that day when he comes again, get this. We are going to see something that I can't even 
fully imagine, I can't even partially imagine it most of the time, we're going to see incarnate deity. The glory of God in the flesh on this earth in authority, in victory over all of his enemies. We're going to see God's incarnate love and grace crowned in glory on that day. We're going to see the one who bears our scars on his hands and his feet to this day. And we're going to be reminded every time we behold the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, but in time and bears the marks of our sin for eternity, we're going to remember when we look around at one another and see no remainings of sin and look to Jesus and say, that's why he took it all away by receiving it to himself so that we would be made whole. He still bears the marks. That's why John tells us in the book of Revelation that there's one who who is there in heaven who looks he's he looks like a lamb that was slain, yet he's the lion. He's the victorious servant of the Lord. And he still bears the marks forevermore. The people he atoned for. They're not they're not mournful marks anymore. They're victorious marks. They're the kind of scars that little boys show each other like, look what I did when I fell out of that tree. Look at that. It's a victorious scar. This is what I accomplished, Jesus will say. This is my work on display. Saints, 1 Corinthians 1, 11, 26. Sometimes we read it so often and we go over it every Lord's Supper. Sometimes we forget the weight of it. And I just want to refresh your minds and your hearts this morning of what's promised here. So we can come to the table freshly amazed by God's grace. This verse promises us that Jesus will come again to celebrate his victory over our sin with us. And he's going to do so personally. He's going to do so powerfully. Therefore, when we come to the table, when we come to partake of the cup and the bread today, we are to, again, do this with eager anticipation of that great day when we will see Jesus in his unveiled glory. You realize when he was here upon the earth, we, we all know Philippians chapter 2, he was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. His glory was veiled. And yet now we have the promise that he's coming again in unveiled glory. I mean, just think about the Roman soldiers when they came to arrest Jesus. And he just simply says, here I am. And they fall back. Just a little glimmer of glory devastates these men. One day we're going to see him in his unveiled glory. I think we have a glimpse of it in the text that Justin actually read this morning, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 actually gives us a glimpse of what we will see on the great day when Christ comes again. Acts 1, I'm going to begin there, kind of where Justin did this morning, in 1-1 actually. Luke is writing this account. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering with many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here's the text I want to get to. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of his, to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Here's the text. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, how did he go? Well, he went in glory. What does it say? Look at verse 9, part B. A cloud took him out of their sight. Justin alluded to the cloud this morning when he talked about the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. This is the Shekinah cloud. This is the Shekinah glory. The very glory of God himself is what is bringing him up out of this world. And he is saying here in verse 11, you see the way he left? Guess what? He's coming back like that. But it's not just for those people there on this mountaintop watching him ascend. He's coming back and all the world will see, as I'll show you here in a moment. And so this is very important to me. When we understand this, when we see how glorious it is that our Jesus is now as he reigns in glory, that he's coming the same way in which he left, we should be amazed We should be sanctified, frankly. What sort of people ought we to be in our conduct, knowing that he is coming in glory for us when he comes? We need to be ready. Jesus makes it clear that he's going to come in a very glorious way in Matthew 24. Look with me in Matthew 24. Every eye will see And as Philippians says, at that day, on that day, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Koryos. He is Lord. He is God. He is Master. He is Sovereign. In Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus makes it clear that when he comes again, it's going to be both personal and it's going to be powerful. Personal in the sense that he's coming to receive his people and Personal in the sense he's coming to judge the wicked and powerful on both sides. Powerfully rescuing his his people. Uh, Thessalonians talks about how those who are being persecuted by the unbelievers don't need to worry because Jesus is coming again to reap a harvest of vindication and judgment upon those who hurt his people. It's powerful and it's personal here. But look what it says in verse 29. 
They were asking, when are you, you know, what are going to be the signs of your coming again? And immediately he says, after the tribulation of those days, notice this, the progression here, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. You guys ever been to a cave? Anybody ever went spelunking? (laughs) As we say in Oklahoma. Have you been cave dwelling? Have you been in a dark room ever? I think the darkest place, I know Ronnie's been in the darkest place I can imagine here on earth, and that would be a mine. I've been in a cave or two, and it's pretty dark. I mean, it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's the kind of darkness that we're talking about here. Imagine this. The entire universe, black. Not a spark of light. And the implication of the world shaking is there won't be any power here on earth either once God is through in his sovereign decree. Everything has grown dark when Jesus comes so that every eye will see his return. Look at verse 30. It says, after everything is dark, then will appear in heaven The sign. It's a definite article here. The only, the main, the central sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. A loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Every eye will see Jesus when he comes. They'll see his power and they'll feel his personal presence, either as their judge or their savior. His beauty and his power, when he comes, will not be veiled. He will not come again in humility. No, he won't. He did that for a very specific purpose in the past. To become our substitute. He is no longer needing to come to be our substitute. His work is complete. He is coming as our victor. Our king. In full glory. When he comes again, saints, I want you to understand something. This is very important for you to just give thanks to God that you're not in this category any longer by his grace. When he comes again, this physical world, all that is in it, will literally be shaken. It will tremble at the sight of the one we call our Savior and our Sovereign King. They will be frightened. They will cry for the rocks to fall upon them. Look with me at 2 Peter. Look what 2 Peter actually says about this glorious day of Christ's return. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Peter writing, talking about the day of the Lord coming, he says this in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, and here we are at the Lord's table, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Do you realize the one who is now sustaining all things, created all things, will one day let it go? And it will dissolve. He will bring it to an end. What sort of people ought we to be in light of that? In righteousness, in good deeds. Well, we ought to be people who know that they've been saved by this great sovereign and go out and tell others there is hope in him. And if you do not turn to him, you will face him as your judge. What sort of people ought we to be? If you study the the return of Christ, it should have a sanctifying effect upon the Christian's life. If it doesn't, you're just trying to look at it academically. You're not trying to actually worship Jesus through it. Don't ever do that. Worship the one who says he is coming in victory. And when he, when he comes, our great and glorious Savior, King Jesus, will come again and he will display and he will proclaim his lordship over the entire world. And he's going to make sure that everyone knows it according to what we saw there in Matthew. When he comes, he's going to be visibly able to be seen. It's going to be undeniable. And as I said, he is not coming again as a humble servant, and he's not coming again wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Not at all. On the day that he comes, all men will see that the one coming is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus comes again, he's going to be wrapped in his royal garments of victory. You guys have all read Isaiah 6. The veil of his robe filled the temple. The long robes displayed the great authority of the king. And this king that Isaiah sees, which is Jesus, according to John, this king, his robe is so great and so glorious because it represents his glory, it fills the entire place. He's going to be clothed in his royal garments of victory when he comes. He's going to be dressed in divine glory and he will reveal his sovereign authority over all things on that day. Don't worry. The unjust things in this life will be dealt with by the king. Nothing will escape his gaze. We don't have to seek vengeance. The one who has the right to seek justice will one day for those who do not repent and turn to him. On that day, though, his divine glory and his sovereign authority will be on display. If you go back to Revelation 19, it goes on to tell us that. Revelation 19, in verse 11. Look at the one who is coming here. It says this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Do you realize the lamb is coming to make war? Because he's also the lion. He's coming. And if you do not know him as the one who is the lamb that was slain for your sins, his judgment will come. 
and it'll be just. He goes on to say this about the one who is coming, the one that we now long for, anticipate. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, many diadems representing his authority. Lord of lords, king of kings. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. That robe, folks, that doesn't represent his righteousness that covers our sins. <laughs> He's at war. This is the wine press illustration. He is trampling out the sinners who rebel against him. But we don't have to seek vengeance on them. We don't have to try to demand justice for all the atrocities that are done in this world by evil men. Jesus himself will do it, and he will be splattered with their destruction, representing his great authority and power. Sometimes we don't just, we always want to have that, I don't know, 1970s Jesus movie picture of Jesus, right? He's the meek and mild, sandy, blonde hair, blue-eyed guy. That's not him. This is him. And the armies of heaven are following him. They're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is a, a righteous judgment against the wicked. That's what that represents. Which, with which he will strike down the nations. He'll judge them all by the word of his mouth. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. On that day, church, know this for sure. Our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord and our friend will no longer be mocked by wicked men. No longer. He will be revered as the king of kings. And amazingly in all that, all that fury and all that judgment, he is also our intimate and personal savior. And amazingly on that day, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you will joyfully see him, not like the world sees him. You'll see the king, you'll see King Jesus, you'll see him being vindicated in his judgments but you'll be able to approach him without fear and trembling of those judgments. You'll see him face to face without shame because it was Jesus, King Jesus himself, who took on flesh to become your substitute, your sympathetic substitute. And now you're able to approach the king without fear of wrath because he came and his Blood has covered your sins. Your sins are now washed away. But it was ordained by God the Father to crush him, to bring many sons to glory. We'll be able to look at him and know that our sins have been washed away by his blood. And we've been granted peace with God because of his sovereign love for us. That actually took on flesh and went to the point of death. To bring us to see his greatness. His sacrifice removes the fear of God's wrath for all Christians. And instead of wrath today, when we think about Jesus, we know that we're going to face a holy and righteous judge who has already judged us fully at the cross. 
So now we can face him with confidence, assurance that we've been accepted through his work. On the day that he comes again, we will know without a doubt as believers upon the Lord Jesus, we will know without a doubt that we are covered, we are cleansed, we are secured by the blood-soaked righteous robes of King Jesus himself. As he comes, we'll rejoice at seeing his victory. We know that we've been accepted by him. We know that he has now given us a right standing before God the Father. He has reconciled us to God. We are now accepted in God the Father's sight as if we are the Son. Does that shock you? It shouldn't. That's what the gospel says. You are loved as much as Jesus is by the Father because of Christ's sacrificial work. That's what grants me confidence to come to the Lord's table each month when I think about this. I often find myself trying to do these self-examinations and every single Lord's Supper Sunday, I'm coming to that table going, God, I, I am not worthy. And he says, yeah, you're right. You're not worthy. But my son was worthy. He was worthy and he's going to receive honor through your looking back to him when you recognize you're not worthy. Every time I come, I find that my confidence in coming to this table is based on the promises of God in the past that came true and the future promises that will also come true. Because I know that if he came in the past and humbled himself and took on flesh to become my sacrifice, my sacrificial substitute, I'm also very sure that he's coming again in victory to receive me to himself, not based on what I did, but based on what he accomplished. And I know that when he comes, he's coming to fulfill that promise. He's coming in victory. And when he comes, our Heavenly Father, understand this, when our Heavenly Father sees the accomplishment of his son on that great day, he will embrace all of his prodigal children because we were brought there by the son. On that day, all God's children will rejoice over the display of Jesus' victory and God's grace. Whenever the world sees him, again, they're going to tremble at that glorious day. Because the king is coming to judge them in their sin. And he's going to judge righteously. And apart from God's grace, King Jesus, understand this, is a fearsome and just judge. So how do you guys feel about that day? How do you individually feel about that day? Do you long for it with eager anticipation this morning? Or does hearing some of this cause you to feel dread? Let's postpone it. Let's wait. I'm not ready. Do you have eager anticipation or fearful intimidation when you think about this day? Let me tell you this. If you have fear or dread about that day, then today... I must tell you that you must repent of your sins and your self-righteousness and your self-reliance because today is the day of salvation. You may not have tomorrow. A little boy in Stratford didn't have tomorrow, yesterday. So I beg you, on behalf of King Jesus and I command you in his name 
today to turn from your sins and turn in faith to him. Confess your need of God's grace this morning if you fear his coming. Confess you need his mercy that's found in Christ. Understand this. He made a way for you to receive that mercy and that grace. He made a way for sinners to be reconciled to himself through his son's sacrifice. And that way is revealed to us at what we are about to celebrate here at this table. The bread on this table reminds us that God the Son took on flesh to reconcile us to God the Father. It was his active obedience that made a way for sinners like us to be credited as righteous in God's sight. His righteousness was placed upon our account and our sins were being credited to his account. But his righteous life was the one that was imputed to us there at the cross. And the bread represents the life of Jesus, the perfect life, his active, obedient life that's now ours by faith. And the cup on this table reminds us that Jesus died in our place to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. His sacrificial death was made so that we would have God's wrath removed from us, that God's wrath against our sins would be appeased. Jesus stood in our place, received God's wrath for us, and God poured out the whole eternal vial of hell itself upon his son for all those who believe upon him. And he appeased the wrath of God. The wrath that we deserved fell on him and satisfied God's just requirements. The promise that's given to us in the communion text we read each month, that promise that Jesus is coming again, it's revealed to us there, it reminds us, as I said at the beginning, that the one who did all this, the one who's represented in all this, he is still alive and present with us, and he is coming to reward those who place their faith and his accomplishments. Church, God has promised us as his people a glorious future in his presence. And through Christ's work, God will not fail to accomplish his glorious purposes. So let's celebrate that this morning. Let's celebrate his grace and Christ's work with confidence until he comes. Now, bow your heads with me, and before I have Blake and Darren come to serve you, I just want to pray with you and give you a chance to think about what I've said this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you not fully able to comprehend your majestic revelation of yourself in Scripture. We can grasp concepts. We can understand what you intend for us to understand. We can't go beyond this, but Lord, even in the, what you have revealed to us, we struggle. I struggle. And as I read the, the Revelation passages and I read the Peter passages and the Matthew passages, I'm in awe and I'm in wonder. But God, when I walk through my normal everyday routines, I'm not in awe and wonder. And for that, I ask your forgiveness. For you are worthy of not only praise on that great day, but every day. Lord, I confess to you that all of us in this room, I can say without a doubt, need your grace. 
And all of us in this room who believe upon Christ by your grace, we want to anticipate the return of Christ in an active way this morning. We pray that you would bend our knees and bow our hearts before your sovereign and great authority, Jesus, so that we walk away from hearing messages like this, reading texts like this, not just saying, well, that was interesting, but saying, God, help me to keep this perspective Fix my eyes on the eternal things. As Edward said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So that we would live our lives with intent and purpose. As your people, as your secured and blood-bought children, let us be forever changed every time we read these revelations. Let it show up in our daily life and routine as we even today examine our attitudes as we come to the table. Help all of us, I pray God, to come here humbly and broken and joyful over your accomplishments, Jesus. And I also pray, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that they would bow the knee, that you would bow their hearts. You would grant them faith and repentance, both of which are gifts from you. Pray that you would grant them that that you would save their souls and glorify yourself through their sanctification. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.